say he's risen. And then those of you who can, you jump up and say, he's risen indeed. Okay, you got it? Let's see. And then the rest of you who can't, you, I, I don't want everybody, because I don't want you to bump heads or anything. I want you to feel the impact. Okay, let's try it. He is risen. Didn't that feel good? I mean, yeah. It's my, my sermon this morning is on the word indeed, really. That's really what it's about. And I wanted you to, I wanted to as well, feel some of the impact of a room of folks where one person says, you know, Jesus is risen. And then others all around the room say, yes, he has risen indeed. And if, if you're in here and you've never witnessed that kind of testimony, it's like, whoa, that's overpowering. I, I didn't know there was that many people with that kind of assurance of Christ's resurrection. Do we really believe he rose indeed? One of the things therapists saw all around the world during the COVID pandemic um, is, is a significant increase, rise in cases of thanatophobia. Now, I had never even heard the word thanatophobia before the COVID pandemic. But thanatophobia is an unhealthy anxiety with the fear of death. And we saw during the pandemic people all around us that were trying to do everything they could possibly do to escape what they perceived to be certain death if they caught COVID. And so therapists were having to deal with this anxiety, these panic attacks that the world was experiencing. And I thought to myself many times, if we just really embraced and understood the resurrection of Christ, it removes, it eliminates the fear of death. So do we not just believe Christ rose, but do we believe he rose indeed to such a, such a degree that it eliminates our fear of death? It actually changes us forever. I don't want us to think about that. Let me read it to you in 1 Corinthians. Turn to open your Bible. 1 Corinthians, and I want to read a longer section than normal, but just hear the Apostle Paul describe the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, let me read verses 3 through 19. 1 Corinthians beginning verse 3, hear God's word. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But 
By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I'll stop and go back and explain that, but start to get Paul's focus. He says, because Christ died and was raised, that was a grace, that was a gift to me, Christ dying and rising. And that was not in vain. That changed me forever. And he makes a statement, not only did it change me, it made me a harder worker than all the other apostles. And I was the worst one of the bunch. But now I've been changed to where I'm working harder than the bunch. And then he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. I mean, this is not just some spiritual jargon. He says, why do you say it if you don't believe it? If you don't believe it, then Christ has not been risen if it doesn't happen. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ. Think about that. You misrepresent God if you say Christ was raised and then don't live like it. You're acting like he didn't raise him. And you're saying God was a liar, that it it doesn't change our status of vanity and replace it with value. He said, we don't want to be in that category. God did raise Christ. Uh, whom, uh, verse uh, 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. Of course, he's saying those few people who have died since Christ has been raised, he says, they're just gone. If Christ has not been raised. They just perished. That's futile. If you don't believe Christ was raised from the dead. Your life on earth is vain. Futile. Pitiful. That's God's description. That's not my opinion. That's God saying. If you don't believe Christ is raised from the dead. Your life on earth. Your time spent here. If it's not governed by the resurrection of Christ, your time on earth is spent in vain. It's futile. You have a pitiful existence. So the resurrection of Christ is crucial to everything uh, that we deal with. Um, So why so much fear of death when we don't perish in Christ? We're raised from the dead. Uh, Maybe confusion. Uh, some people confuse resurrection with reincarnation. Resurrection is not reincarnation. Reincarnation is where you die and you come back. It's a false doctrine where people say you come back to life as another human form or as an animal or as something. But see, that's not resurrection. You're, you're something else. 
You're, you're not you anymore. That's not, that's, and it's a false doctrine anyway. Some people confuse that. It's not reincarnation. Other people confuse re- resurrection with resuscitation. It's not, it's not resuscitation either. That's bringing someone who seemingly has died back to life. They're the same person. They died. They're brought back to life. They've been resuscitated, but they still have to die again. They haven't been raised, just resuscitated. Well, if it's not reincarnation and if it's not resuscitation, what is it? The resurrection of Christ is the removal of the soul from this perishable body to unite it with an imperishable, glorified body that still represents and is identified as you. Or it's Christ. It's you in a glorified state. Christ in a glorified state. That's the resurrection of Christ. That's what he did. Um, That's good news. That's what we inherit. You know, we inherited sin. And the wages of sin is death. The good news of Christ is I can take what is dead and I can resurrect it. And the reason we know he can do so is because he's proven it by being the firstborn from the dead. And he arose from the dead. He was buried, dead, stayed dead, then rose again from the grave, victorious over the grave, over death, in a glorified state, having the power to give resurrection to those who believe in him. If you believe in Christ, Christ has the power to give you a resurrection from the dead so that you never die. You live and you do not perish. Um, And that matters greatly. Again, notice verse 3 and 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried. He was raised. Think about that. He said... This is of first importance. The good news is not that if you live a good life and if you do the right things, you'll get to go to heaven. That's not what it said. The good news, he says, of first importance, not that you be a good person and do good things. Of first importance, the primary thing you need to get is Christ died, was buried, and he rose again from the dead. That's the good news. That's of first importance that you understand that because that changes everything. You re- it, 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 it urges you, it calls you to receive Christ because he alone has the power. You know, our world's followed a lot of people. Many, probably a greater number than we can imagine have followed Muhammad. Muhammad died, still dead. He has no power to give you. Many have followed Confucius, probably more than we know, can imagine. Whole different culture. Confucius died. He's still dead. He has nothing to give you. Our world, America right now, is following following Karl Marx in a new social democracy like never before. Karl Marx died. He's dead. He has no power to give you. 
But Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead. Christ is the only one, the first one. And it's of first importance that you get it, that only Christ has the power of the resurrection from the dead. So believe him. Or it's vain. Follow who you want. It's vain. It's pitiful. It's, it's, it's a futile life. Follow Christ who alone has the power to raise us from the dead. Let me give you two proofs. The one here, and Joe's mentioned it a little bit already, is the eyewitness testimonies. But I don't want us to miss this morning the, the, uh, the, the testimony of the empty tomb. Let's, let's look at another passage. Let's look at John 19, verse 38 and 40. John 19, 38 through 40. This is when Peter and John are coming to the tomb. John 19, verse 38 says, And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly... For fear of the Jews, asked Pilate. You know, it, they had to be secret. It, their leader, King Jesus, had died and was buried. And he was against, according to the crowd, Caesar. And he's definitely against the Jews, according to the Jews. If you followed him, you might die. And now that he's dead, you probably don't want to step up and say, I'm still a follower. Uh, really? Okay, well, let's just kill you. Let's put you with him. And so Joseph says, yeah, I was secretive about it for the fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate, can I take away the body of Jesus? Give him a proper burial. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. About 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot of burial ointment. Think of it more as powder, gummy powder. And so as they take Jesus' body that had already been proven dead by thrusting a spear into his side and taking him from the cross, they then take him with 75 pounds of spices and they begin wrapping his body. And each time they wrap, they would pour in this, this, these ointments for his preservation. And they would wrap. And they wrapped him up. And they wrapped his head. And they laid him in a tomb. Now the tombs back then, they were cut into the rock. So they, usually the hole is, is down here. Because... Um, you don't have the tools to cut a big opening. So they cut and they hollow out a place for the body. And we know it was a low tomb because all the disciples who go looking in says they have to stoop to get in. You know, they got to they get down and get in. And they've pulled Jesus' body into this tomb. And typically tombs already had stones cut to roll in place and over. And of course the Roman guard says, we want to make sure this is untampered with. We don't want anybody messing with this body and creating some fabricated story. So they guard the tomb. That's the situation that we're familiar with. Verse 41, now in that place where he was crucified, there was a garden 
and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, that's where they laid Jesus' body. It was laid on the top of the, the rock there in the tomb. Now, Simon and Peter come. Look over chapter 20, verse 6. Simon came following him and went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus on his head, not lying with the linen cloth and folded up in a place by itself. So Simon's looking in. He notices the cloth, sees the face cloth differently folded. And he backs back. Then, verse 8, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first he also went in, and he saw and believed. That was enough for John. John didn't need any more. He saw what he saw in the tomb was enough for faith. So I, I believe the only way things the way I see them could have happened. The burial cloth is there. If you're going to steal a body... Are you going to take the time to meticulously unwrap it? It's already dead, right? Do you want to even touch the dead corpse? Are you going to go through that trouble of unwrapping the burial cloths? Not likely. And then when you take the wrapping off the head, are you going to fold it up nice and neat and lay it off to the side so people can observe your, your manners? John looks in, he sees what looks to be burial cloths undisturbed. And the wrapping of the head folded up nice and neat. And John says, there's no way Christ could have come out of this tomb unless he just miraculously passed through and came out himself. That's enough for me. I believe. He is raised from the dead. The empty tomb in itself is a miraculous testimony. To this day, if you go over to the theme park in Israel to look at these artifacts, they don't know where Jesus' tomb was because it wasn't his tomb. He didn't stay. It became somebody else's tomb. And it was passed down differently. And nobody to this day knows where that place was. And then nobody's ever found any physical remains. He didn't leave any behind. He rose again from the grave. And now with a glorified body. And just imagining the empty tomb... That's where John was. He says, that's enough. I believe. The empty tomb proved it to me. And it wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. See, the body wasn't there. And by the way, spirit doesn't need to be raised. Spirit doesn't die. The body was what was dead. And the body was raised in some miraculous fashion that convinced John. Now, let's go to the second convincing proof the indeed of the resurrection indeed he did rise again from the dead the eyewitness testimony that 1 Corinthians 15 focuses on 
Think about the eyewitness testimonies. And I, I've written them out for you. Put you on your outline because I knew I wouldn't have time to go through each of them. But it would, it, it's a great study just to look at each one of them. I want you to get the collective or the composite of these testimonies. Some are in Corinthians and then there are more. And I think it's close to this order in which people saw the risen Christ. Let me just go through them. First, Christ appeared to Mary. Mary went and told Peter and John they come back. So she saw him first. Second, to other women that were with Mary. They came. They saw Jesus alive. Then to Peter. We read his story. He comes. He looks in first. He sees Jesus alive. Number four, to the two on the road to Emmaus. Jesus leaves the garden, goes to the Emmaus road, picks up two people there, reveals himself then. Then to ten of the disciples. Then he goes to his disciples. Ten were there. You know the story. Thomas wasn't. He got to come back. For eleven disciples where Tom, Thomas is there, and he shows himself to them. Uh, they were in a locked room at the time. Verse number seven. Then to seven disciples, he goes and has... You know, a meal. Let's eat some fish. Uh, let's hang out together. Uh, number eight. Then to 500 followers at the same time. That's not an hallucination. When you show up to 500 people at the same time. And then he comes to his brother James. We'll go on to number 10. To, then to the 11 again at the ascension. Now between 9 and 10, they've got 40 days of Jesus being with his disciples. We don't have all of those appearances. But he's hanging out with them. Verse 11. Number 11. To the apostles by many proofs. He appeared to them during those 40 days. Speaking about the kingdom of God. Number 12. He was apparently seen by Stephen after that. And then he showed up when Paul got saved. And then he shows up one last time to the apostle John. Those are testimony after testimony after testimony of Jesus' personal encounter with people. Now, if, if you are a, a lawyer, you're an attorney, and you want to prove the resurrection of Christ, this is a slam dunk. Lawyers love eyewitness testimony. And Jesus has provided... An unbelievable amount of eyewitness testimony that he has been raised. And you start to think of it, a lot of, a lot of appearances. When you start looking them up individually, some were in Judea. Some were in Galilee. Some were on a hill. Some were by a lake. Some were indoors. Some were outdoors. Some were a long ways away. Some were very close to Jerusalem where the apostles were. Some were by appointment. He says, go, I'll meet you there. And then others were random. No appointment at all. Um, some were to men. Some were to women. Some were to... Various groups, and all were, for the most part, very personal, close encounters where you were given the privilege of examining him. You could come up and see crucifixion wounds. You could embrace. 
you could examine, you could talk with, you could ask questions. That was the resurrection of Christ. The conclusion, and oh, don't miss the part where Paul says, and as he's preaching in 1 Corinthians, he says, this is the case, and all of these personal eyewitness occurrences, they happen to, over, to hundreds of people. He says, and most of them, most of those hundreds of people, they're still living. You want to investigate, go ask them. They're personal eyewitness testimonies by hundreds of people from every walk of life, from all over our world, that He is risen. The conclusion, He's risen indeed. You could imagine that crowd. Yeah, I, I saw Him. I hugged Him. I saw the wounds. I touched Him. I talked to Him. I walked on the road with Him. I had an appointment. I sat down and had a meeting. I ate with Him. It's real. There's no doubt for the first century believer. Christ is risen indeed. Well, many people miss it. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians, he says, But by the grace of God, you know, it's not in vain now. Life is not in vain. It changes me. Now, before I talk about the change, just think about how historical facts change us. 1776, we gained our liberty. We declared that we were free. When America claimed its independence, we're no longer under British rule. It changed us, right? A historical fact changed us. So we live differently as a result. Or if you hear... 30, 40 years ago, two people got married, had a child, and now you've heard that child is you. Historical fact changes you for the rest of your life. Now you're somebody different. How does the historical fact of the resurrection change us? It changes us. And the Apostle Paul begins to say, I was given a gift. I was given the gift of resurrection. By Christ. And that changed. I want you to see three things. There's more. But that's what we have time for. Three things. The resurrection supplies us an individual value. It changes us to have value as individual churchmen. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in verse 10. He says, the, the grace of God. I, I am what I am. He said, you know, this is not what I went to school for, it's not what I trained for, it's not what I was dreaming of, but I am what I am now. The resurrection changed me. It's not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. What did Paul do that was harder than the apostles? Paul planted churches. Paul was a churchman. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem with the Jerusalem church. And Paul was sent out to plant churches in every ethnic group. Throughout every nation, his job was to plant churches. So he wouldn't stay long. He just kept going, planting churches, building the kingdom of God. He says, I worked hard at that. And he gave his life for that. Lots of stories he told about how he was stoned, how he was beaten, how he was whipped, how he was, they tried to drown him. I mean, just so many things. He says, but I worked and I worked. Why would he do that? Because he had been given the gift of the resurrection. And he wanted others to know that. Now, 
look at you and me. This is an individual value. Look at chapter 2 of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 10. You've heard this verse many times, perhaps. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship. Not just Paul, we are. His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So just as Paul says, now because of the resurrection of Christ, I am what I am. I'm a churchman. And I work hard. I work harder than the apostles. God says, you get saved. You receive Christ. You become his workman. He's prepared works for you. And you start thinking about some of them. Look over at chapter 4 of Ephesians. And he gives us a long uh, description of how we will work together as Churchman, I won't have the time to, to read all of chapter 4. Let me just read parts of it. Um, uh, verse 15 of chapter 4. Rather speaking the truth in love, we, tr- we are to grow up in every way into Him who is head into Christ. So we're to grow in Christ. Now from the whole body, all of us believers, joined and held together by every joint which eat which it is equipped by every joint with which it is equipped when each part individual each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love our job as churchmen is to build up the church little by little piece by piece by whatever you can supply we have value God says You have become a workman in my church to build up the church. And you do it in love. You build up other believers so they all grow in Christ until we're all to our full maturity in Christ. Paul says, that's what I'm working at all the time with all the strength God gives me is to build up people in Christ, to start churches and to build churches and to grow churches. If you live this life You see, without the power of the resurrection, and you spend no time loving the church and building the church, giving yourself to an eternal entity, the church is the only entity that survives. We're resurrected. We have resurrection power. There is no salvation possible outside the church. Only the church, those who are Christ, enter into the glories of heaven. If you spend your life on earth not giving yourself to anything that's eternal, you're pitiful. Paul says, you're much to be pitied. You really would spend a, a, a lifetime and not do something that reaps eternal rewards? That is something that's significant beyond the here and now? He says, you have value in the resurrection to be individual churchmen building up the church. Significant value. Number two, we have value in corporate church. Corporate churchmen. Now let's think about that for a minute because Paul says, I'm working hard at this. The apostles were working hard at this. This is what they were doing in Jerusalem. As you think about the apostles' work, as a result of the resurrection of Christ. Within days of Christ's resurrection, there were thousands. 
Look at Acts chapter 2. You know this story. You haven't thought about just how it flows from the resurrection. Look at Acts chapter 2. Beginning at verse 22. Why well, I made a, a big deal earlier. That Joseph goes to pick up the body of Christ secretively. Not wanting people to know. People were hiding. Some people said they might spread the rumor that Jesus really arose and he, he is somewhere. We need to guard, guard the cave. We need to guard the tomb. Make sure that doesn't happen. Well, there was, there's no case whatsoever. No, no, no case has been found of any disciple running around trying to connive and create some story. Why? Because they were fearful. They were hiding in their homes. Their leader, their king, had just been crucified. They're not saying, oh, we're going to carry on without him. They're not doing that. They're hiding in their homes. But then within days of Christ's resurrection, thousands gather. It's different now. He's not dead. He's not in some tomb. He's resurrected. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it's not possible for him to be held by it. Now when Peter preached this first sermon, the Spirit of God came upon thousands and they respond uh, verse 41 so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls and verse 42 and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship breaking bread to prayers and the rest of that passage and they started taking care of one another that's unparalleled that's unmatched that's never happened. Someone died, was buried, rose, and when he was raised from the dead, and it was proclaimed, thousands would say, how do I follow him? I want to receive Christ. I want the power to put an end to death. To not die. To not go to hell. I want the glories of this resurrected life. Thousands started getting together. In one sermon, to hear more preaching and teaching, to pray to this through Christ, to take care of one another, to take the Lord's Supper, to do baptism. Thousands took that message. Without the resurrection, I think the Apostle Paul made that clear in Corinthians, verse 17. Without the resurrection, think about it. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If Christ had not been raised, none of this would have happened. But as soon as it was understood that he was saved, everything changed. The first sermon that was preached after the resurrection hinged on the resurrection. It hinged on it. Thousands understood it, believed it. 
the first healing. Let me take you through Acts real quick. The first healing, chapter 3 of Acts 13, says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified the servant Jesus, whom you delivered over. So he's glorified. They focus on that. He's now glorified. Um, and, and denied the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we're witnesses. So it hinges on the resurrection. And the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, it's all about this lame beggar who got raised. And they're wanting to know, how did the lame beggar get healed? Peter Dunkett, it's the resurrection. The one you crucified and buried, he has power to give life. He raises his people. And again, he says, you want to investigate it? We're witnesses. We're eyewitnesses to this. Verse 10 of chapter 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... Whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. So the first sermon hinged on the resurrection. The first healing hinges on the resurrection. The first Jewish church that was established hinged on the resurrection. Chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered, and they... They answered, said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and as savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So that's the Jewish church. God came to the Jew first. And he started a church. And he says, we're witnesses God's raised us up. And then to the Gentile church. Uh, look at Acts 10, verse 37. The first Gentile church. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. That's the Jews beginning from Galilee after baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses. All that he did, both in country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up. That's the kingpin. On the third day, and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us, who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Gentiles, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So the first church hinged on the resurrection. The first healing hinged on the resurrection. The first clearly Jewish church hinged on the resurrection. The first Gentile church hinged on the resurrection. Without the resurrection of Christ, I am convinced there would have been no church. No church. 
It would have crumbled to dust. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, it's empty. It's vain. We're spinning our wheels. But because Christ is raised, she says, I became a churchman, and I work harder than all. And then the church started to flourish and to grow. And not just the Jews, but the Gentiles into every nation and tribe and tongue. That's the results of the resurrection of Christ. We have a church. We're here today because of the resurrection power of Christ. He's raised indeed, without doubt. And then the third value I want you to see is just the value in worship as an activity. Why am I always so excited to come and to corporately just praise Jesus? Because he's not like us. We don't praise each other like we praise Jesus. Jesus is not like us. He's the God-man, fully God and fully man, glorified with power to raise the dead. There's no one like that. And he offers that to us as a gift. Praise you, Jesus. We worship you for giving us the privilege and the value of knowing you and honoring you and thanking you. Um, you know, you see the glorified state in the resurrection appearances of Jesus. He didn't come in like dazzling garments and just uh, wow people. He came in a, in a body that for some who had even known him, at first, it, they didn't recognize it. And then he says, well, you can check me out. And then as their examination was closer, they said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God, I worship you. But you've been changed. John saw it at the tomb. He's been changed. He can pass through cloth. That was carefully wrapped. The disciples see it a week later in a locked room behind locked doors. Christ passes through the walls. He passes through the locked doors. And they're trying to figure out this new glorified experience that Christ has. Ability to walk through walls, walk through doors, to pass through cloth, to go for a long ways away to a very short distances, snap. He appears to this person and he appears to that person. How does he do this? This is this glorified body that was granted through the resurrection. And that power, he says, I want to give. Now, people have all kind of crazy ghost stories about going to heaven and floating around on clouds. It's not in the Bible. Doesn't say Christ came back as a vapor. He didn't come back as a ghost. He was bodily raised. And we believe in the body, bodily, bodily resurrection that God promises us. Now let me give you an illustration. If I had a, a steel ball, let's take a steel ball and let's tie it to a string. So I'm I'm swinging this steel ball. Okay, and you assume with me 
The steel is more substantive than water, okay? Steel's strong, hard. I can splash the water. Can't do much to steel. It's strong as steel. Strong steel ball. So I'm swinging this steel ball on a string. And then I have an aquarium full of water. And I dip the steel into the water. And because it's so heavy and substantive, I can still swing it. And it moves through the water. What's more substantive, the water or the ball? The ball. We assume that. It can pass right through the water. Does it disturb the water? Does it mess with the water? And yet it's more substantive. And in this glorified state God gives us, we can walk through the walls and have more substance to ourselves than we've ever had before. And that's what I mean. He's not like us. He's greater than us. And you're sitting there saying, that blows my mind. And no, that's not what it does. It brings us, my Lord and my God, we worship you. We worship you. Because you alone are worthy. You who was dead and buried and rose again from the dead and lovingly, graciously gives that gift to me. You've given me value to be one of your eternal worshipers, I believe. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. I don't know where each of you are, but I do know this with certainty. If you don't receive Christ, well, let me say it differently. Only, let me say it this way, only a resurrected Savior will get you where you want to be. Only a resurrected Savior will get you where you want to be. And there's only one. And that's Christ Jesus. If you don't receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, it won't get you where you want to be because we all want to be in heaven. If I compared heaven and hell, nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody wants a glorified state. And without Christ, it's not possible. Existence is pitiful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, King, God, Lord, resurrected brother, friend, Messiah, and Savior. Lord, we worship and adore you. None but you are worthy to receive all power and glory and dominion. Thank you that you give grace to sinners. You breathe new life into the dead that we might be with you for an eternity. Father, for those who are hearing and understanding for the first time, may they receive you and receive all the joy of this glorified life that you've given us in Christ. We do adore you and thank you for the opportunity each week to do so together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.